Section three of Rudder Grange. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rudder Grange by Frank R. Stockton. Chapter two. Treating of a novel style of border. Part one. In this delightful way of living, only one thing troubled us. We didn't save any money. There were so many little things that we wanted, and so many little things that were so cheap, that I spent pretty much all I made, and that was far from the philosophical plan of living that I wished to follow. We talked this matter over a great deal after we had lived in our new home for about a month, and we at last came to the conclusion that we would take a boarder. We had no trouble in getting a boarder, for we had a friend, a young man who was engaged in the flower business, who was very anxious to come and live with us. He had been to see us two or three times, and had expressed himself charmed with our household arrangements. So we made terms with him. The carpenter partitioned off another room, and our boarder brought his trunk in a large red velvet armchair, and took up his abode at Rudder Grange. We liked our boarder very much, but he had some peculiarities. I suppose everybody has them. Among other things, he was very fond of telling us what we ought to do. He suggested more improvements in the first three days of his sojourn with us than I had thought of since we commenced housekeeping. And what made the matter worse, his suggestions were generally very good ones. Had it been otherwise, I might have borne his remarks more complacently. But to be continually told what you ought to do, and to know that you ought to do it, is extremely annoying. He was very anxious that I should take off the rudder, which was certainly useless to a boat situated as ours was, and make an ironing table of it. I persisted that the laws of symmetrical propriety required that the rudder should remain where it was, that the very name of our home would be interfered with by its removal, but he insisted that ironing table grange would be just as good a name, and that symmetrical propriety in such a case did not amount to a row of pins. The result was that we did have the ironing table, and that Euphemia was very much pleased with it. A great many other improvements were projected and carried out by him, and I was very much worried. He made a flower garden for Euphemia on the extreme forward deck, and having borrowed a wheelbarrow, he wheeled dozens of loads of arable dirt up our gangplank and dumped them out on the deck. When he had covered the garden with a suitable depth of earth, he smoothed it off and then planted flower seeds. It was rather late in the season, but most of them came up. I was pleased with the garden, but sorry I had not made it myself. One afternoon I got away from the office considerably earlier than usual, and I hurried home to enjoy the short period of daylight that I should have before supper. It had been raining the day before, and as the bottom of our garden leaked so that earthy water trickled down at one end of our bedroom, I intended to devote a short time to stuffing up the cracks in the ceiling or bottom of the deck, whichever seems the most appropriate. But when I reached a bend in the river, whence I always had the earliest view of my establishment, I did not have that view. I hurried on. The nearer I approached to the place where I lived, the more horror-stricken I became. There was no mistaking the fact. The boat was not there. In an instant the truth flashed upon me. The water was very high, the rain had swollen the river, my house had floated away. It was Wednesday. On Wednesday afternoons our boarder came home early. I clapped my hat tightly on my head and ground my teeth. Confound that boarder, I thought. He has been fooling with the anchor. 
He always said it was of no use, and taking advantage of my absence he has hauled it up, and has floated away, and has gone, gone with my wife and my home. Euphemia and Rudder Grange had gone off together, where I knew not, and with them that horrible suggester. I ran wildly along the bank. I called aloud, I shouted, and hailed each passing craft, of which there were only two, but their crews must have been very inattentive to the woes of landsmen, or else they did not hear me, for they paid no attention to my cries. I met a fellow with an axe on his shoulder. I shouted to him before I reached him, "'Hello! Did you see a boat? A house, I mean, floating up the river?' "'A boat-house?' asked the man. "'No, a house-boat,' I gasped. "'Didn't see nothing like it,' said the man, and he passed on to his wife and home, no doubt. "'But me! Oh, where was my wife and home?' I met several people, but none of them had seen a fugitive canal-boat. How many thoughts came into my brain as I ran along that river road! If that wretched boarder had not taken the rudder for an ironing-table he might have steered in shore. Again and again I confounded, as far as mental ejaculations could do it, his suggestions. I was rapidly becoming frantic when I met a person who hailed me. "'Hello,' he said. "'Are you after a canal-boat adrift?' "'Yes,' I panted. I thought you was. You looked that way. Well, I can tell you where she is. She's stuck fast in the reeds at the lower end of Peter's pint. Where's that? said I. Oh, it's about a mile further up. I see her a-driftin' up with the tide, big flood-tide to-day, and I thought I'd see somebody after her for long. Anything aboard? End of section 3